This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 5th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kazuo Ishiguro has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, author of Never Let Me Go, The Remains of the Day, not only a literary feat, but also a famous lunchbox. My fifth grader has been using a Suburbicon lunchbox, the George Clooney-directed Matt Damon film. True fact, factual truth. Here's a citation from the Nobel Committee. In novels of great emotional force... Kazu Ishiguro has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. And to me, that is not so much an explanation or a justification or a citation. That's just trying to get Kazu Ishiguro to look at you or to look at a piece of prose you wrote and say, hey, that's some good writing. Now, I've been going through these citations, especially for the uh, literature citations, and they started off really, really plain and understandable. Thomas Mann, here was the citation, principally for his great novel, Bundenbrooks, which has won steadily increased recognition as one of the classic works of contemporary literature. They're basically citing critics like it. For George Bernard Shaw, they said, for his work, which is marked with both idealism and humanity, it's stimulating satire often being infused with a singular poetic beauty. I mean, they tried to do a lot there. So does Shaw. For Alice Monroe, and this was only a few years ago, they were still on message, master of the contemporary short story. But again, I think they were trying to get the recipient to look at their sentence and say, hey, that's a sentence I would have written. V.S. Naipaul, for having united perceptive narrative and incorruptible scrutiny in works that compel us to see the presence of suppressed histories. There's a lot going on in that sentence. I do not give that sentence the Nobel in literature. Not at all. And then, of course, there was Rudyard Kipling, famously, perhaps now controversially, winner of the Nobel, and his citation just read, My Kid Liked the Jungle Book. On the show today, a spiel about guns, still against the easy accessibility of them. That hasn't changed. But first, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. You might be on two of them now. Sure, they're a boon and a convenience, and they're great businesses, but they are taking a piece of our mind and maybe, argues my guest, Franklin for our soul. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. 
And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So this week it was revealed, this week in crazy Russia revelations, that Facebook played some ads, uh, reached about 10 million people, swing states like Michigan and Wisconsin were targeted. It's previously been revealed that Facebook was having user groups that, you know, fomented unrest in places like Idaho. At first, Facebook didn't want to cooperate with federal authorities. Now they do because they know if they don't, they could get regulated. All of this is set against the debut the introduction, the publication of a new book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's by Franklin Four. And the timing of this couldn't have been better than if a Russian bot had pulled it off, Frank. So congratulations on that. As long as you're not accusing me of being a Russian bot, I, I don't think know. I, take it. <laughs> I don't know how do we falsify that. Is right. there a Turing test for that? Well, look, Facebook ain't turning over any of the evidence that might suggest that that's the case. Uh, so Zuckerberg... When he doesn't want to cooperate with Congress, he can cite a couple principles. How much of his principles are something like libertarian and keep the government out of our users? And how much of his principles are, I'm a capitalist and don't want to be regulated? I think a lot of his principles are that he created a system Mm -hmm. that he considers to be the world's greatest public square and that he engineered the system beautifully. It it has incredible logic. It, It serves all the purposes that he set out for it to serve. And he's very idealistic about the system that he served. I think Zuckerberg is less good when it comes to human beings. He tried to create this thing that was supposed to connect every human being in the world to one another in order to to inspire peace, unity, better conversation. But I think when it comes to some of these concrete questions about the ways in which Facebook is abused, his answer is, well, the system is doing what it wants. It was, it was created to respond to people's wants and needs, and it's not our job to shape people's wants and needs, except in the instances where Facebook does want to shape people's right. wants and needs. But do you think he says that because that's his ideology? Or does he say that because if he admits that Facebook is something other than the, a public square, like if he admits it's a publication and not the telephone company, he's going to get regulated in a different way? Right. Well, sure. That's that's clearly the case, is that he's, he's afraid of regulation. But I also... I also don't think we can discount the ways in which Facebook has a cult of personality based around one guy. It's got a profound sense of of mission beyond the mission of just making money. And so when they can't see certain things, it's not just that they wanted money from um, from Russian hackers or that they wanted they, they wanted racists to spend money on buying uh, racist or anti-Semitic ads on their site. It's that they believe that it should be a system where 
it's that's purely responsive for a company of its size and importance. Uh, their actual lobbying arm is pretty lame. I think that was true a while back, but I think it's actually escalated fairly dramatically. Google is has spends more money on lobbying in Washington than any other company. Facebook has definitely amped up its lobbying mm-hmm. over over time. Both those companies have been ecumenical in hiring Democrats and Republicans as hired guns and 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 That's signing up with yeah. the yeah. And so of course they would, right? Yep. They're they're in the crosshairs. They've been surprisingly slow footed in responding to the Russia revelations, and I I really do think that has to do with Facebook's own self-conception and Zuckerberg being a bit bullheaded about Facebook's role in the world. If your theory is that we need government regulation for companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook, Google came into being because of government uh, regulation. Might the unintended consequence of government regulation be worse than free market? Not if the government is consistently vigilant, not if we mm-hmm. begin to set standards. I mean, part of the problem is, is that over the course of the last, say, 20 years, we've essentially adopted the paradigm of these tech companies, which is that competition is always a click away. But I think that you could argue, I mean, I argue that times change, right? And that the possibility of that happening grows actually ever more distant. I mean, just look at the way in which startup companies behave now, which is that they aspire to get bought by these giants. Or look at the ways in which these giants acquire talent. The people who might otherwise uh, hunger to displace them are sitting in, in Mountain View or Cupertino working for these companies. So Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. Are they enough in each other's business that they will act unmonopolistic, that they'll they'll be the check on each other competitively. Right. So this is always a question when it comes to these questions about monopoly and antitrust, which is, all right, you can define competition. You can define a market any way that you want. And so you, you get four antitrust lawyers in a the room. They're going to define the market in four different sorts of ways. And so and, and, and just because there is some competition in these markets doesn't it shouldn't really exempt us from considering the fundamental questions. And the fundamental question is, is that these companies have amassed tremendous amounts of private power. And there's really no counterweight to to that power. And that poses problems to us as a democracy. When you were the editor of The New Republic, you would get uh, surveys of who your customers were, right? Of course. They would give you the demographic breakdown, the age, the income, if they like hockey or cooking, whatever. When we had an owner who actually cared about expanding our readership, yeah, yeah. we would do those service. <laughs> that was good. That, that's the right kind of owner for a yeah. for-profit company that one would want. So I, I would assume you would think that that's not wrong, and not just because the New Republic, uh, their mission is a good right. mission. Uh, is it just a matter of degree? Like if I gave you 10 times the data, then maybe you'll think about it, but if I gave you 100 times the amount of data you've had, maybe you could really market that magazine, but at this point, it's become too much? Yeah, I think it has become too much. The amount of data that we have, the volume of data, the, the the quality of that data is really this Pandora's box. That if you, I mean, when I saw that data about newsstand sales, say, in, in the earliest phases of my editing The New Republic, when I wasn't obsessed with Chartbeat and, and web analytics, 
Of course, I wanted to reproduce results. The problem with that model was that it created formula, that mm-hmm. it created it created convergence. So now that we know, you know, which tweet works to sell an article, when we know which headline works, when we know which subject for each an individual article we're considering in this cost benefit sort of way to try to appease the data, that exaggerates that effect. A lot of what you uh, write about and a lot of people who think and worry about this are thinking about privacy. Personally, the privacy argument doesn't get me in the gut like some of these other arguments, like the filter and the and the uh, information bubble argument does. Because to me, it always seems like the privacy argument is uh, represents a thing that could be. I just can't point to examples of our privacy having eroded in the present and therefore some horrible thing happening. Sure, all this information in the wrong hands could lead to something and maybe there's just a failure of imagination on my part. But, you know, we put a lot of uh, cameras in London and we complain about the panopticon. Yet the practical effect is it solves a lot of crime. But are there practical things, real tangible things going on right now that that highlights your privacy concerns? I think the way that the erosion of privacy happens is exactly as you describe it kind of it's nibbled it's nibbled away um and it creates this illusion that we're safe and so we end up typing things into Google uh we end up sharing things via text with the expectation that it's going to remain safe and the problem is there will be a day when that safety is going to disappear and we're going to start to rethink how we communicate how much does it, we were talking about Zuckerberg a lot. If Zuckerberg tomorrow decides he wants to Bill Gates it and he wants to cash out to the extent he can and form a foundation and he wants a foundation mostly to do good in the world and it does and he wants to direct Facebook in that way. Hey, let's be a better corporation. I already made a lot of money. If this guy changes his mind or reads your book and, and finds it persuasive, how much does the whole problem change? It doesn't change. And, and it's a, you want him to go out and do good in the world. And you want to be able to think about him as an admirable person. And perhaps he is an extremely admirable person. But the system that he created is the system that he created. And there's just so much power invested in that system. And I don't pretend like I've got the magic answer for how to deal with this. I don't think it should be regulated like a utility, for instance. Um, I don't I don't I I. I not sure it can be broken up into component parts like some of the other companies could easily be broken up into component parts if that's what a judge decreed to be necessary. Facebook is what it is. And Mm -hmm. I think that the best solution is to find ways to create space for competitors. And so as they go about merging, as they go about accumulating more data, I think that there are ways for government to hem it in so that the next thing can emerge. I mean, that's that's what we want. We want there to be options. So if uh, if I don't like Facebook's algorithms and the way that they work, I can still reap a lot of the benefit from Facebook, a Facebook-like form of social media without reaping what I perceive to be the downsides. If If I don't think that Google does a great job of protecting my privacy, there should be a plausible competitor to that, and Bing ain't it, and Duck Duck Go ain't it. <laughs> Sorry I asked to say. Jeeves, and he's not up to the task. Yeah. Uh, How long have you been sitting on that line? <laughs> it just hit me. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the history of information technology, really revolutionary information technology from 
uh, the printing press to the radio to the television and on and on and on. And now we have the internet. I suppose in all those other instances, there were people who really worried about it and they should have been. I mean, TV was a vast wasteland. Does this really represent more of a threat than any of those other transformative technologies did? Or are you saying, look, I understand it's mostly for good, but we're abdicating our responsibility to at least consider some of the downsides? I actually think the dangers are worse. Mm-hmm. And what, what is the danger? The, the, the danger is the internet is everything now, right? Everything flows through the same digital stream. So the printing press was about one very specific medium of communication. Radio was one specific narrow means of communication. This is every means of communication. It's, it's private conversation. It's connected to uh, the thermostat in our home and, and to the cameras on the streets. And so... There's that aspect of it. And these companies, there's really no boundary to them. They aspire to encompass everything. And so Google started off wanting to organize knowledge, and now it's building self-driving cars. It's got a life sciences company that's trying to cheat death. Amazon started off as the everything store, and that's not big enough for it. And so now it's a movie studio. It owns the Washington Post. It owns Whole Foods. It powers the cloud. And so that, that, I think, captures the sense in which power concentrated in a handful of companies that aspire to control everything represents a fairly unique sort of danger. I still think the automobile was more transformative. I'm pretty sure the telephone was more transformative. There wasn't one innovation in mass communication. You know, it went from telegraph to radio to, well, telegraph wouldn't be mass communication, going from radio to TV. But the internet's definitely up there. I mean, it's definitely like top three or four well, the other massively thing is, transformative The other thing is, is that I actually think that it is, it is transforming us as a species in a way that those other technologies didn't. If you listen to Sergey Brin, he talks about implanting Google directly in your brain. And I don't think that that's... Such a big stretch. Zuckerberg is messing around with this uh, telepathy technology where he wants to read human brainwaves. Uh, that's something that Elon Musk is investing heavily in. And so to me, they're actually moving in a direction that that qualitatively changes us and actually physically changes us as a species. And so that's part of, I think, the skepticism that needs to be applied to these companies and their projects, which is that maybe they're changing us in a, in a definitional sort of way. And maybe that's good. Maybe there's a lot of this that we want. And, we, and, and I just think that, you know, because the stakes are pretty high here and because the changes are so momentous, why not, why not, why not ask skeptical questions? Why not try to, to create an architecture that allows us to be thoughtful in the way in which we merge with these machines rather than simply accept everything as it comes? Yeah. Let's not bow down to our overlords. Let's at least, <laughs> you know, read a book, which is available on Kindle, I have to say, but I have the hard copy, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Franklin Ford wrote it, and he was here. You heard him. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for putting me through my paces. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. 
to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. And now the spiel. You know, I like to consider opposing viewpoints. And since I so strongly believe in some stronger gun control measures, I have been seeking out those who don't to challenge my beliefs. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not the leading light on this issue. Her, what about Chicago? Or, now's the time to mourn, not to act. They're not so much counter-arguments as attempts to stop a charge like a bulletproof vest. And like a bulletproof vest works via interweaving material, which tries to dissipate the force of the incoming charge, so must too her array of statements be taken as an overall tapestry, if you will. But she's not really offering real thought out reasoning. For that, I've turned to the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Yesterday in a staff editorial, they wrote, the impulse to do something after an event of such horror is understandable and progressives believe that every human problem can be solved with a policy tweak. I actually don't believe that. I don't think lying, stereotyping, and ugliness can be stopped with a policy tweak. I happen to think that the legality of lethal weapons can be stopped were you to make those weapons illegal. Now, if this were Somalia, I wouldn't believe that. But in America, yes. With a policy tweak, or what we sometimes call a law, when we're not being so highfalutin, you could remove some guns from the hands of some would-be murderers. Of course you could. Wouldn't stop all gun murder. Would stop a bunch of gun murder. You know, enforcing drunk driving laws doesn't stop all drunk driving, does it? But it does stop a bunch. Gun proponents love the argument. Look, what's the point of a gun law? Criminals don't follow laws, which seems more like an argument against laws or lawfulness in general than a specific gun law. Anyway, it's a major strain of argument by those who don't want to pass gun laws that they won't do anything. Here, the editorial goes on. But since our friends on the left have decided to make this a debate over gun control, someone has to explain why their familiar solutions won't stop mass shootings. They're saying the solutions proposed will be ineffective. And the day before that staff editorial, their columnist, Holman Jenkins, wrote on this theme of legal solutions that just won't do much. Non-meaningful gun regulations, in fact, were the specialty of a Democratic senator who long represented Nevada. Scene of Sunday's killings, Harry Reid had a lifetime B rating from the National Rifle Association. And a New York Times columnist on Monday under the web headline, Preventing Mass Shootings Like the Vegas Strip Attack, proposed eight steps that, whatever their slight utility in lowering the rate of other kinds of gun crimes and suicide, even the writer admitted would have no overwhelming effect on gun deaths. That was Holman Jenkins, his fellow Wall Street Journal columnist Dan Henninger wrote about the impossibility of getting any good laws passed. He writes, gun control is now the oldest, most sterile, wheel-spinning issue in American politics. It has nowhere to go. It's another big argument that you're not really going to pass anything, so why bother? So let's take all the arguments that the Wall Street Journal and those in their employ are making, and it becomes this. Laws that can pass won't have any effect, and laws that can have an effect, they're just not going to pass. It's not technically circular reasoning. It is conveniently complementary reasoning, and it's not surprising to see that line spring from the minds of people who don't see a problem. They're essentially saying, well, how about we not try a solution? 
look, I know that Jenkins and Henninger do think there's a problem in mass murder, but they don't think guns caused it. They think bad men caused it. I would assume they're against the sale of mass quantities of fertilizer that could make a bomb and grenade launchers and street legal Abrams tanks, but with guns, it's the people who are the problem. Well, here's the real problem. Some of the solutions that they say won't pass or won't help actually would help. The journal cites a study that looked at all mass murders from 1999 to 2005, and they say only 27% were carried out by assault rifles. Well, part of the reason for that is that during some length of the survey, assault rifles were banned. So maybe a ban on a certain type of weapon actually shows up in less of that weapon being used. And since that study, 50 people were killed at the Pulse nightclub, 14 were killed in San Bernardino, and at least 58 were killed in Las Vegas. So not by number of incidents, but by pure body count, a lot more than 27% of those killed were killed by a bullet coming from the type of weapon that was once banned, but now isn't. As the journal mentioned in arguing that a ban on AR-15 type weapons won't do anything, hey, the attack on Virginia Tech was done with handguns. That's true. That is the third deadliest shooting in U.S. history. The first was Las Vegas assault rifles. Second was Pulse. An assault rifle killed most of those people in that nightclub. It was also used in conjunction with a Glock. The Sandy Hook killings. All of those children and teachers were killed with an assault rifle. It was a Bushmaster. The shooter and his mother. One was shot with a rifle bolt action and the other was shot with a pistol. And all of these killings took place post the ban on the weapon that was used to carry out most of the killing. Before the ban went into effect, the worst mass killing in America was at Lubby's Cafeteria. That was powerful handguns. But the worst before that was at a San Diego McDonald's. An Uzi did most of the killing. Then Uzis were banned. Now you don't hear about Uzis being used in mass murders anymore. I guess and that's the rare case where criminals follow the law. Go figure. Mass murders are not most of the murderers in the U.S., but it is certainly the case that assault rifles are used in a disproportionate amount of mass murders. So I guess the argument against banning assault rifles is that they will only make mass murder less deadly, and that seems like a good argument to me. Of course, people will have to give up their guns, or not even, they'll just have to give up certain kinds of guns, and when they give up their guns, they're probably going to be asked to give up a sense of comfort given the number of mass murderers out there with assault weapons. Today, the NRA said it would sign off on a ban on bump stocks. That is something. We don't know if banning this device that allows semi-automatic weapons to act like something close to an automatic weapon will save lives. But if it's not banned and a bump stock's used again in more killings, the NRA will have a nightmare on its hands. Well, an additional nightmare beyond the ones that they and the rhetoricians at the Wall Street Journal countenance all the time. And that's it for today's show. Dan Schrader is cited for his producing, in which the fantastic and the realistic are combined in a richly composed world of imagination, reflecting a continent's life and conflicts. Producer Mary Wilson deserves citation for an epic and psychological narrative art, which has introduced a new continent into literature. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is also one who, with the concentration of poetry and the frankness of prose, depicts the landscape of the dispossessed. The gist for our discoveries concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids and its significance for information transfer and living material. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening.